Take your Bibles and look with me at Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And uh, we come upon part of the narrative here, which is um, a remarkable account in the life of our Lord, a very, very important event, as we'll see in just a moment. But as we've studied Luke's Gospel, we have seen in the providence of God as the circumstances of the Lord's ministry have unfolded, and as Luke has recorded it, in precisely the ways recorded it, that there is this confronting that continues to come to the surface as the life of our Lord unfolds and as the message and preaching of the Messiah on the earth begins to hit the hearts of the people who are in the listening audiences. There was a fundamental problem in the heart of every human being that continued to get confronted with every sermon Jesus preached, every miracle he did, every uh, display of compassion and every woe that he gave, even as I read from Matthew's gospel. There was a fundamental problem in every human heart that was being addressed. It was constantly being tilled until it got to the surface and men and women had to face it. That fundamental problem is simply this, that at the very core of every human being is this self-worshipping tendency, this nature that wants to worship self. At the very control center of the inner life, we are self-worshippers. It is intrinsic, that is to say it originates with our fallen nature, and it is systemic in the sense that it permeates everything about us. We grow up loving ourselves more than others, more than all others, And we, by nature, are unwilling to acknowledge God nor give thanks, says Romans 1. Every human being is born understanding that there is a God to whom we will ultimately answer. It doesn't matter how much you suppress it, it is there. And even though we know God, we do not acknowledge him as God nor give thanks. So that any time we hear someone talk about the truth from God, any time we read of Jesus in the Gospels preaching about God, every time we see a display of the power of God, it makes the unbeliever uncomfortable. He does not want to acknowledge that he is indeed in need of God and must fear his judgment. But even though that's the case, even though we all suppress the truth in unrighteousness, it is also the case, according to the scriptures, that none of us think we're actually all that bad. We actually think that we're better than that, even if by degrees, despite all the obvious evidence to the contrary, we cannot morally improve in any universal way or even in an ultimately powerful way. We cannot resolve the issue of evil. We can't fully and permanently repair and heal all the destructive relationships that bring so much misery to our lives. We can't perfectly resist temptations to do evil. We can't solve the problem of natural evil and the destruction of our world. Nor can we eradicate destitution and pain and disease or war. And if you find even a religious culture, self-righteousness and hypocrisy is there as well, all over the place. Generations have come and gone, and the one constant is that every human being is in need of an overhaul of the heart. We need a change on the inside. We need our hearts to be completely softened by the reality of our sin condition, otherwise we will harden against the truth. We need our guilty consciences cleansed, otherwise we will be under constant guilt until we face judgment. 
We need our sins forgiven. But we have no way to solve that problem on our own. We can't enjoy freedom from guilt and from fear of judgment if we're unwilling to cry out to God in repentance and faith. There has to come a point in every sinner's heart when his pride is shattered by the crushing weight of seeing his miserable plight. And having seen his miserable plight, there has to be a point in which his sense of self-righteousness becomes to him a bitter thing. And in seeing yourself rightly, there becomes this place in a sinner's life when he sees that nothing he thinks or nothing he does will ever be good enough or bring a moment's peace to his conscience. It's only then that he's ready to hear of Jesus and not take offense. Look at Luke 7, verse 23. Jesus said, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And you see, that's the issue. And that is why Luke records what he records and why God in his providence puts together circumstances the way that he does. It is in God's providence that this message is going to continue to be put forth to the people. If you want to know God, you must come through Jesus Christ rather than be offended at Jesus Christ. There are only two kinds of people in the world, those who worship themselves and those who worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we said it another way, just to sort of turn it around, you are either offended at your sinful self and trusting Jesus as your Savior, or you're offended at Jesus and you're trusting in yourself. So with every event in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, this self-worshipping, self-righteous bent continues to be confronted, and it is a grace from the Lord. It is a kindness from the Lord. Now, let's just sort of think about context for a second before we come to this narrative that we're going to look at in verses 11 to 17, an amazing narrative, and it's a wonderful little story, but rather shocking. But before we get there, let's just look at the way that this line is traced throughout this chapter and on into the beginning of chapter 8. We already saw that Jesus had been preaching in chapter 6 to the masses and he'd been saying, look, you say you all want to follow me? Well, there are true disciples and there are false ones. What is the takeaway that the crowd was to walk away from with? Basically this, if your deeds reflect that of God's righteousness, then it manifests a changed heart, a repentant and believing heart. But if your deeds are not the moral conviction about eternity that you should have or the merciful deeds you should have, then you are a false disciple, no matter what you say. Then we saw last time that this Gentile centurion, he had a servant, a home servant or a house boy that was in serious need and needed healing on death's door. This was an illustration, this story, as we saw last time, was an illustration of great faith on the part of a Gentile outcast in contrast to Israel, who should have known better, and yet they were offended at Jesus. They didn't have real faith. They said they feared God, but they didn't have real faith, and Jesus makes that contrast. Here's a Gentile outcast, and he expresses great faith in the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ, and yet Israel hadn't even manifested that kind of faith. So following after righteousness is an offense to an unrepentant heart and submission to Jesus' authority and faith is an offense to an unrepentant heart. 
In this particular narrative, you're going to see that Jesus demonstrates that he has life in himself. He can conquer death, therefore both physically and spiritually. He brings comfort to this grieving mother. But Luke includes the account here, and in God's providence it happens here, so that news could spread all through the countryside and eventually to John the Baptist, who's in prison, which Luke then later records a little interchange with John the Baptist's disciples about who Jesus is. What you're going to see here, the upshot of this narrative, is that Jesus' frightening power is an offense to those who are not repentant, and we will see the people's reaction in just a little bit. Then, John the Baptist sends some disciples and says, are you the expected one? And Jesus says, yes, I'm the expected one, and you should know this from prophecy, because the dead are raised. The ears of the deaf are opened, the eyes of the blind are opened, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. It's exactly what Isaiah prophesied. And so, John the Baptist, you can believe it. I am the expected one. <clears throat> That's why the raising of this son from the dead in 11 to 17 is so critical, because it's tracing a line right through to that affirmation in, in the hearing of John the Baptist that Jesus, in fact, is the one the Old Testament prophesied about. <clears throat> that's why verse 23 says blessed are they who do not take offense at me there is the central feature of these entire uh, narratives in this section verse 24 to 29 the people went out to see a great prophet John the Baptist and he, he was the forerunner of the Messiah but there were some people who went out there and they were merely fascinated with it and Jesus is making the point look what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see uh, someone that was luxurious and living a soft life? No. You went out to see a great prophet, but though he's great and the greatest one born of women among men up to this point, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the least of those who put their faith in Christ are greater than the great prophet John the Baptist. What's his point? You come out into the desert to see a prophet, but you're just fascinated with him because he's kind of an incendiary personality. He's kind of caustic, and he has a bold message, and you all stand around like you're interested in what he's saying, but you're really not. You're just fascinated with him. What I want to see is real faith. Don't be fascinated with great prophets. You can be great in the kingdom by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ rather than being offended by him. That's his point there. And then, of course, the generation to whom he first preached wouldn't respond to the gospel. Didn't matter how it came. John the Baptist came, he said he has a demon. Jesus came, did the opposite thing, and you, you know, just like I read in Matthew's gospel, you, you say he's a drunkard and sits with outcasts and he's defiled by sinners. Doesn't matter how you come. How the truth comes to you, you still reject it. And finally, at the end of this chapter, verse 36 to 50, we won't get to it today, but you have that wonderful account of this fearless prostitute. She's been forgiven, and she comes rushing into a formal dinner of this Pharisee. And what does she do? She worships. She loves Christ. Why? Because she's been forgiven. And, and Luke records it, and God sovereignly allows it to happen because he's putting side by side, once again, this person who's been forgiven all her guilt and it results in love and humility and real faith and repentance and puts it in contrast to a Pharisee who hides his contempt for Jesus behind this minimal gesture of respect. 
He's instanced at the very notion that he would need Christ's forgiveness. There is the issue right there. He's offended at Jesus. And so this account in 11 to 17 sets up for the display of the power of God over death, both physical and therefore spiritual. It sets up for the promise that he is the expected one because he does raise the dead. And it sets up this crowd who watches it happen to polarize them. Which one are you? Are you the one that takes offense at yourself when you see such power and you come to Christ with repentance and faith? Or do you get offended at Jesus? That's the issue here. And the stage is set beautifully. Notice verse 11. Let's just walk through this text and see the story unfold. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a city called Nain, And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Now stop right there. So, it came about soon afterwards. Some some translations will say the next day. Uh, It's an interesting usage that Luke has here. It probably just means soon Uh, and next in the chronology or perhaps it might be translated not long afterwards we don't know if it's the next day because when Luke uses that phrase he uses a different form of it Uh, but it's the same word here for next but he doesn't have the word day in there in the original text and he uses a form that probably just means not long after the thing happened with the centurion Jesus was on his way probably a day's journey now Uh, headed out to this place called Nain. Modern Nain, which is spelled N-E-N nowadays, it's about six miles southeast of the little slope, the northern slope of Mount Hermon there in Israel. And um, so it's not too far from Capernaum, maybe a day's journey, maybe 20 miles from Capernaum uh, if you traveled it by foot. And there is Jesus heading toward this city, and, and uh, in excavations they haven't found the ancient gate, but nonetheless it was built in such a way on the slopes of Hermon there that there would have been a single gate entering into this little village, this city. And the crowd that was coming with Jesus was made up of his disciples, as you can see here, and there were a multitude of onlookers since they have been sort of attaching themselves to Jesus' itinerary all throughout the area. And so it's a sizable crowd, and they are headed into this area and and approaching the gate of the city, verse 12 says. Now, I love that because in God's providence, this is a major traffic zone for the city, and God wants this event spread throughout the land, particularly over to John the Baptist, so the disciples of John the Baptist will finally know, yes, there isn't anyone to look for, this is the expected one. So there's all these wonderful connections that in the providence of God are being established here. At the gate of the city, you would have had the security forces that protected the city, so their offices would be there. The tariff office would be there. Somebody would be there collecting tariff for people who come into the city, There would be peddlers who weren't allowed to do their business in the city, so they would have to do it outside, and they would do it right at the gate. That's where the traffic flowed in and out. So you'd have those people and their little businesses. Visitors coming into the city and visitors leaving the city are part of this 
one entrance to the city, and then there's this large multitude that's trailing Jesus as they approach the gate. And what you see here is God just gathering his multiple witnesses who will take this news of Jesus all over the countryside. And now this is amazing what happens, and Luke indicates it by telling us that as they're approaching the gate, a funeral procession is coming out of the city. As he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Literally, in the original text, behold, a dead man was being carried out. So check this out. Look at this, Luke says. Do not miss what is about to happen. The staging is just great. The anticipation is building. And if the crowd already following Jesus weren't congested enough, and if the city entrance and egress weren't crowded enough, this is a funeral procession, procession which just happens to be coming out at the very same time to go through the gateway to the burial grounds. And a large crowd is gathered behind this processional. We know the man is truly dead because two terms are used here which indicate that very thing. The first is the technical term for him being carried. He's being carried in an official procession for a funeral. It has a normal casket or whatever it is they would carry the body in and this is the technical term for the casket bearers carrying the corpse to the place of burial. It's unmistakable. Probably three, four days after the death uh, because in... The Jewish mindset and in the ancient perspective, it took three days for the spirit and soul to ultimately depart and have no chance for life anymore. You see that in John 11 with Lazarus. Jesus waits till the fourth day so that there can be no mistake, even for those who were superstitiously believing that the soul and spirit lingered over the body until the fourth day, everyone would know that corruption began to set in and there would be a real problem in defiling everyone around it if a grave was opened. And so here you have a funeral procession where the condition is the same, probably third or fourth day. Clearly he's dead. The corpse is being carried. That's the technical term. And then the other term is a verb participle here, and it just means the one having died. Again, the same term used in John 11 of Lazarus, the one having died came out of the tomb. It can only mean that this person is deceased unmistakably. Everybody knows it. God has gathered a crowd at a funeral procession and put it right in the main traffic area. And Jesus is walking up with his crowd. Now who is it that has died? Well, if you're keeping a little outline, we might just sort of mark the text this way. First you see here in the text a mother's indescribable devastation a mother's indescribable devastation notice verse 12 a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother that's the first thing we note here is that this is her only son he's an only child she has of course no other children to take up her long term care so the devastation gets a little deeper. He's a male child, so 
Culturally, he's the last one to continue the family name. That is to say that the estate and its assets would normally be passed to the male, the females in the family, uh, both the widows and grandmothers as well as the wives, and then any subsequent daughters born would come under the protection of the business carried on by the male family name. We have some of those same customs and ideas today, but in ancient times this was critical to pass the estate and its assets to someone so that someone has proper care. And since the aged were respected, that's obviously not parallel to our society. But back then they were highly respected, especially if a widow needed care and the estate would be passed then through the male children. And this is her only son, and so the name and the assets of the estate would be in serious jeopardy because there would be no one then to work it out and take care of her in that way. And it's devastating enough when parents have to bury their children. My wife and I have had to do that and we've had that in this church over the years and even very, very recently. But no one would really deny that losing a child is a uniquely devastating experience for mothers because God has fashioned women in such a way that whether a woman has her own children or not, she's still driven by her very nature to protect and care for and nurture children. It is a gift from the Lord. It is a grace of the genders. It is a blessing to society. It is the only way that society perpetuates is, is for the family then to extend to the care and nurture of the woman who's a mother to those children or an older woman who cares for someone else's children or adopted kids who are brought into a family and cared for by a mother. It is their life blood. It is how they're made. It is God's fashioned grace in their life. And a father will certainly grieve over the death of a child but even decades later, as the anniversary of that loss comes about, uh, though painful each year, rarely does it affect the dad the way that it affects a mother. We've, we've had a son in glory for, you know, our, he was our firstborn. We, he's been there 35 years. But on that anniversary, it, it comes and goes sometimes without anything more than a thought in my mind, a thankfulness to God. But for my wife, it's a time of tears and overcome with grief not because she misses her theology or somehow is skewed in her thinking or doesn't trust the Lord, but there's a unique grieving that takes place with a mother. Jeremiah 31, of course, speaks of that time when Israel, in judgment, um, had severe punishment and other nations came and took the children, the offspring, and Ramah, of course, was heard weeping for her children. Lamentation and bitter weeping, Jeremiah 31, 15. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. A woman is unconsolable when, inconsolable when they lose a child. And Matthew 2, 18 will record that same thing as a fulfillment of that very prophecy in Jeremiah 31 when Herod killed every male child, zero to two years old, to try to take the life of the the Messiah, the baby Jesus, and um, same quote, Rama, Rachel heard weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. That's the situation here. This mother has lost her only son. And she's reeling from the abrupt end to the family name, no doubt. 
How will there ever be a continuing legacy, let alone the care of the estate or any assets she may have, even if she has very little? And the grandchildren she'd hoped to see flourishing will never be, they will never exist. She can have no hope of being cared for by close family when she needs it most in her twilight years that was always taken care of by the sons. Furthermore, the devastation just continues to get worse. She is a widow, so she has recently, if not not too long ago, lost her husband, companion in life, the one to whom she bore this son. Her only son was her only comfort at home, having lost her husband, and now, having buried her husband, she's now burying her son. This is devastating. She's not only alone relationally, but she's likely without any security financially. If they have some assets or land, she has no one to work it. She probably have to sell off what she does have so that she can just secure some kind of future. And the entourage is large. Coming out of the gate with her, she's accompanied by this sizable crowd from the city. This would have included some acquaintances, maybe longtime friends, mourning her loss and entering into her devastating situation. It's also true that in ancient times there were, at every funeral, hired uh, those who would who, cry or enter into the grief and bereavement of those who had lost a loved one. And they would do it, true, as professionals, but they would actually be engaged in it. Now, to us, that seems very bizarre because we want our family around and people we know, and you don't want somebody that you don't know involved in those private grief times. But back then, to enter into someone's grief was an act of great care. It was, it was an, an act that lifted up your grief before God in a unique way and made everyone know that there was great suffering going on. And so there would be this customary entourage of professional mourners, and they were trained to enter into this bereavement, and they would cry out loudly. They would have expressions of genuine anguish. There would be terrible emotional upheaval and commotion going on and songs that were filled with sorrow. And this was a great comfort to the surviving relatives. It's a great comfort. So it was a pretty large crowd and entourage with her. Her son is gone, her husband is gone. This is devastating. And then you see not just a mother's indescribable devastation, but a stranger's inconceivable request. A stranger's inconceivable request. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Now stop right there. This just jumps right off the page, doesn't it? You, you said what? I mean, this is not a situation where you ask the most bereaved loved one to stop weeping. Now, it's precious here because of what the text says about the Lord, and it wouldn't be unusual because it's recorded all over the Gospels. When the Lord saw her, so he's coming up on the entourage, she's at the front of the procession, right near the casket. She's out front of the the bearers and the casket, and then the crowd is coming out behind all of that. So she's right out front, and when he saw her, he felt compassion for her. The, The term literally means he was suddenly gripped with emotion. 
That's just such a sweet description and it, we find it all over with regard to the Lord. His life was marked by moments, human moments, deeply emotional moments where he was overwhelmed and his heart went out to people. He saw grief and misery and need and his heart went out. That's literally this term. It means at the innermost gut level, there is a shaking or a trembling. You know, it's, it's when you see somebody in desperate need and suddenly you get that tightness and you choke up and immediate sudden tears come. That's this term and it's the strongest term for gut level emotions that overwhelm you. He probably gasped or at least inside, felt such. Same thing happened in Mark 6.34 when he saw the great multitude and he felt compassion for them, the text says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Man, he saw all these people on the hillside and they didn't have a shepherd, no one to tell them the truth. All they had was the religious establishment and the false religion and all that garbage and they were lost in it and miserable and unrepentant and hardened and duped and deceived and he saw the masses and his... His insides wrenched emotionally because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he just wanted to gather them in because he knew what was coming, judgment, and he knew what they needed, grace. Same thing in Mark 1.41, he was moved with compassion with the leper and so he stretched out his hand and he touched the leper and said to him, I'm willing to cleanse you, be clean. Someone had asked him for mercy and he was wrenched, same word. This is a reflection of God. We know that. The psalmist says it in Psalm 68, 5. God is the father of the fatherless and a deliverer of the widows. Your translation might say judge. He's a deliverer of widows. Look, God looks down on those who have been left with nothing and they're in need and he loves to see mercy toward them. Psalm 146, verse 9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, and he thwarts the way of the wicked. Beware the sinner that harms an orphan or a widow. Beware. God hates that. Jesus statement was, first of all, rooted in selfless pity. He felt compassion. But there was also a divine purpose, a sovereign purpose. Notice, he said to her, do not weep. Listen, if a stranger at a funeral of this magnitude in a public square with the surviving mother who is inconsolable and overcome with this heart-wrenching grief, if that stranger says this kind of thing, he better be able to completely upend the situation. Turn it around. Reverse it. He must if he can't, this is the most heartless thing you can say. If he can't, he ought to be thrown out on his ear if he can't change it. You don't walk up into the middle of any funeral like that, let alone a public one of this magnitude, with a woman who's lost her only son and has already buried her husband. You've got to be able to do something if you're going to say, stop crying. If somebody did that at a funeral, you'd be, you'd be looking around for some people to haul that person out you're insane telling this mother to stop grieving it makes no sense and as I said she's out front so this is 
now becoming the center of the moment. The text doesn't indicate how he said it, but clearly he didn't say it in any scolding tone, nor was he casual, and certainly wasn't indifferent. He was full of compassion, no scolding. He just walked right up to her and said, stop weeping. And having said that, he moves toward the bearers with the casket. Verse 14, he came up and he touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. You think? Why? Why would they come to a halt? Well, first of all, this is a defiling motion. I mean, he's a stranger. They don't know who he is. He's walking up with a big crowd. This is a funeral procession. They're all worked up. Everybody's in the professional ceremonial mode and the dead body's been anointed in the casket. No one is touching that thing. It would defile someone who unceremoniously touches it. Unconsecrated. It's just, you don't deal with dead bodies like that. You're not a part of the deal. And he comes right up and he touches it and the bearers came to a halt. Nobody works to move him away. This is a shocking motion for him to touch it. And that's precisely why he does it. He knows that's going to halt the entire procession. And now everyone's fixated on him. And you know, there's a second reason why they halted. Because they're now watching her. She is beginning to, to stop her weeping. At least that's implicated here. And she's fixed on him. So the one person that they're trying to comfort is now drawn and spellbound to this person who's come up and said, stop weeping, and he's touching the casket. And the Lord's staging is so, so absolutely captivating. So the stranger makes this inconceivable request. Thirdly, he is also a deliverer and he has some unfathomable power. A deliverer's unfathomable power. Notice, he comes to the coffin, touches it, the bearers came to a halt, and Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. And, verse 15, the dead man sat up. (laughs) Wow. Look, beloved, I've been to countless funerals. Too many to count, as you have, I'm sure. Sometimes when I'm standing over the body, I know it's just a shell. doesn't matter whether it's a Christian funeral, someone who knew Christ or someone who didn't believe in God. Either way, I know it's just a shell. My theology's intact. But sometimes when I'm standing there and I am near the shell, the body of this person who has been deceased, in my mind's eye, I imagine life again in that corpse. But I just can't imagine it. Why is that? Because it's obvious it's just a shell. It doesn't matter how you paint it. doesn't matter how nice it looks, how you dress it up. It's just a shell. When life is gone, there's no soul, there's no personhood, there's no nothing you can tell. And I've often sat there and imagined, what would it be like if we could just reverse this and life would explode into that dead body again and shock everyone? And it's only imagined in my mind because if I voiced it, everyone would think I was insane. Why do we think that that would be insane? Because it's impossible. 
Every person in this room who's been to any memorial service or funeral, you, you all know it's never happened. People claim to raise the dead all the time, and it's always some staged antic or some third-party story, and there's never any proof, and doctors can never verify, and the story gets more and more vague the more you press in, and 2020 does a special, and no one's ever found anybody who's been raised from the dead, yet they claim it all the time. Jesus walks up to a public funeral, touches the casket, everything stops, and he says, young man, I say to you, arise, get up. And he sat up instantly. Anybody been to a funeral like that? No. We've never been to a funeral like that. This is power. Unfathomable Divine power, sovereign power, authoritative power, comprehensive power, frightening power. Instantly. And notice it was by his word alone. All he said was, get up. Young man, get up. He sat up. I mean, when Jesus speaks, you do it. Even if you're dead. (laughs) You do it. Because he can command souls. He can command physical life. He can command tissue. He can command the death, the enemy of death to flee. (laughs) This is shocking. John 11, he was there at Lazarus' tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And wrapped in grave clothes, Lazarus comes to the doorway. Just like that. There's no... You know, like Cecil B. DeMille does it, you know, no shaking, any of that kind of stuff. Just speak it. Why? Because this is God. This is the expected one. Isaiah said the dead would be raised. Well, if he walks up to a funeral and says, stop weeping, to this kind of woman, he better be able to raise the dead. And sure enough, with merely a word, his power is on display and his claim is verified and affirmed. I love this. He sat up, the dead man did, and began to speak. (laughs) You know what that is? That is the Lord making sure that no one goes away thinking it's some parlor trick. Same boy. Everybody knew he was dead. And he begins to speak. What does that mean? Reason, personhood. Intelligence, normal. If he just sat up, it'd be like any old Frankenstein imagination you might have that would be in the ancient minds of the people. No, God's not going to allow that. The boy sits up and starts to speak. What did he say? I don't know. I'm back. I I don't know. (laughs) What do you say? I mean, it's a shock. But he didn't wait to speak. He didn't wait to be asked a question. He just started to speak. What, what are all you people making so much noise for? Or maybe he just started speaking to his mother. I know, this is wonderful. This is gracious. Mother, I'm here. I want to comfort you. Maybe he said the same thing the Lord said. Don't, don't cry anymore. I'm here. We're together. This is profound. And yet it is frightening At the sound of Jesus' voice, death flees, life comes forth. 
J.C. Ryle, I love the way he said it. The king of terrors at once was silenced and the insatiable grave gave up its prey. Now the grave is never satisfied every funeral we go to. And yet, right here, it's nothing to Jesus. It's absolutely nothing. Get up, gets up. There are only a few places in Scripture where a resurrection is recorded outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Always at the hands of some marvelous grace work, uh, but very few places where it's recorded. Elijah the prophet, in 1 Kings 17, he raised the son of the Zarephath's widow. It's very interesting. It's a woman who's a widow. He's raising her son. And the successor, Elisha, in his prophetic ministry, 2 Kings chapter 4, he resurrected the son of the Shunammite woman, again, an outcast to whom God had sent mercy, and there was this woman, and the son was resurrected. A dead man came back to life when he touched Elisha's bones, 2 Kings 13. In the New Testament, you have this resurrection recorded here. You have the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, Matthew 9, verse 25. You then have Lazarus in John 11. Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Mary, loved Martha. He went to that situation and he was trembling and grieved. He didn't, he, he, he had contempt for the effects of sin, the devastation of sin, the misery of death and all that sin causes in the lives of people and yet he also wept because he, he was sad that Lazarus, his beloved friend, was gone. And then, amazingly, at Jesus' crucifixion, Matthew 27 records that when he said it is finished and breathed his last, a, a, a whole bunch of saints were resurrected and then they hung out in the tombs, it says, until Jesus came out of his tomb resurrected and they all came out and went into the cities. So there you were cooking your meal on Sunday. The earthquake happened. Everything's disrupted. Family's coming over and your deceased relative comes popping over. That's power. That is power. Later in the early church, Peter and Paul both had an incident where they raised someone who had died. Peter raised a female disciple named Tabitha, Acts chapter 9, and Paul was able by the grace of God and the power of God to see Eutychus raised back to life after he fell out a window during a sermon. Aren't you glad we've done away with window seats? <laughs> but the Bible says we're not to marvel at this. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 28. Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Listen to this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the, the tombs shall hear Jesus' voice. Wow. Every person who's ever lived, every person who's ever died, and that's everyone except Christ, and even those who were carried to heaven apart from death, just a couple in ancient history, everyone will be brought to the throne of God. Everyone who's died, the tombs will be opened at the very sound of Christ's voice, and they're going to come forth, those who did the good deeds manifesting that they had believed God and they will be raised to a resurrection of eternal life because their deeds manifested the righteousness of God by His grace. And then those who had the evil deeds, they will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. All at the mere sound 
of Jesus' voice. Every soul, every grave opened. And then, 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. This is the beginning of setting up his kingdom. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we are still alive and our left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Listen, even with the catching away of God's people to be with him forever, it happens at the sound of his voice, at the command of mother's indescribable devastation and a stranger's inconceivable request results in a deliverer's unfathomable power and that leads to this multitude's inadequate shock and awe. Look at this, verse 16. Fear gripped them all, yes. Terror, yes. Their blood ran cold. This is the term here. They're, they're flush. They're lightheaded. This is surreal. They've never seen anything like this. this suddenly this is power that, that should crush their pride. It should make them look at themselves. It should make them say, God, if you're this righteous and this authoritative and this powerful, I do not want to take offense at this person, Jesus. And they began glorifying God. You say, everyone? Were they all saved? No, it doesn't indicate any of them were saved. It means they started to lift up praises to God. Those in the crowd that knew anything about what God had promised. And this is what they were saying. A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. That's Old Testament language, meaning that God has come and, and brought divine miracles among his people. Listen, beloved. They're in shock and a bit of awe, but it has not resulted in repentance. Not necessarily. Some may have repented. Some may have ultimately glorified God with a right heart, but not all. It should have been all. I mean, they just witnessed a resurrection. They just witnessed the power of Jesus Christ to bring life to a dead body physically. That means he can bring life to a spiritual dead heart. Instantly, he can call your heart into Life, instantly he can harden it and shut it down and never put any grace on your life. Remember Matthew 11, what I read? Jesus said, thank you God for hiding these things from those who think they're wise and who take offense at me, but thank you for revealing them to those who are spiritual infants who know they don't know anything and they want to be taught of God. Thank you, Father, he said. You mean Jesus deliberately hides the gospel and his grace from some? Yes, from those who take offense at Christ. You shouldn't take offense at him. I don't know how anyone doesn't deal with this. It's a resurrection. Jesus did it. His enemies didn't dispute it. It actually happened. It's in the history books. It was never disputed. There it is. How do you deal with a man that can do that? And so... Verse 17, this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding districts. Why? Look at verse 18, the connection. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. See, Luke is making that connection. This is going to run this report across the countryside all the way somewhere out in the eastern plain where John is in prison and his disciples are going to report it to John and he's going to report back and say, are you the expected one? Or is there some other messianic ministry and I've sent the disciples to the wrong one and Jesus is going to say, John, go back and look at the scriptures. The deaf hear, 
the blind see, and the dead are raised. If this boy isn't raised from the dead at Nain, prior to the report getting to John the Baptist, it may very well have meant that John the Baptist couldn't ultimately believe Jesus was the expected one because everything prophesied about him had to come true. And so here's a resurrection done by Jesus right there. And the report goes all the way to John the Baptist. He is the expected one. He can snatch the keys of death and hell away from Satan. And death is no enemy to Christ. You know, it's amazing to me when you share, gospel, share the gospel with your friends and relatives that don't know Christ and colleagues and coworkers. It's amazing to me how quickly they take offense at Jesus. And yet all you have to do is tell them, not that they'll believe, but tell them, look, you have to deal with this person, Jesus, because he can do this. He did this. And if he can raise a dead human being, something that no human being can do on earth, You can go to a thousand funerals. It will never happen. And Jesus did it. And if he did it and it wasn't disputed, you've got to deal with his claims. He is the only one then that can regenerate and bring life to a dead soul. And he's not going to do it if you take offense at him. He's only going to do it if you carefully consider with humility your condition before him that he is who he claims to be, that you will have to answer to them. He has this kind of authority and he can, he can harden you or he can soften you. Plead with him for mercy if you don't know him. He's a compassionate God. Just like he had compassion on this woman's physical plight, he will have compassion on the spiritual plight. Come to me all who are weary whose souls are weary with sin and are heavy laden, burdened down with guilt, and I will give rest to your souls. It's a sad thing when someone takes offense at Christ. Don't take offense at Christ today. He has resurrection life in himself. Father, thank you for this morning and for this amazing narrative. Wow. And what you did at that funeral and how you orchestrated those crowds to come together in just that moment and how that must have spread across the hillsides and how this would become the fulfillment of all that the prophets said so that John the Baptist would know once again and so that he, the great prophet, the forerunner, would not take offense at Christ. He had believed, but he needed confirmation and it came Lord, we're stunned that this enemy, death, is nothing to you. It has no sting. It can't stay. It must flee at your very word. So why would we ever distrust the power of your word, the power of regeneration, the power of spiritual deliverance? Why would we ever doubt it except the pride of the human heart that wants to believe we're good enough and that you owe us something. Lord, humble the hearts of your people today and humble the hearts of those who don't yet know you. Be merciful to them. Explode into their dead hearts with spiritual life 
bring them to the end of themselves that they might repent and not any longer take offense at you. We pray this in your name. Amen.